0: Welcome to the sixth and final episode this season, I think? Yes, I would assume so. Okay, of uh, Cleveland State University's Psychology Club podcast. As always, I'm your host, Kevin, joined by... Mado. Mm-hmm. And on this episode, uh, we mixed it up a little bit, and we did not talk to somebody in the field of psychology, but we talked to Dr. Michael Wiedela, who is a member of the philosophy department here at Cleveland State University. Uh, His background is in uh, mostly ancient philosophy, He's uh, a self-described Aristotelian. Um, I know he has a strong background in Platonic philosophy and Neoplatonism, um, which we will get into if you don't know what that is. And, um, yeah, I mean, we talked about some topics that came up earlier in this season, in particular happiness.
1: Yes. Um, I I would say this podcast was very refreshing just to talk about philosophical ideas as such. Uh, I personally like thinking about ideas and talking about these ideas and investigating them in a deeper manner. And in this podcast, we, uh, I was able to do that without holding uh, these ideas to ideas uh, to empirical evidence. Just discussing ideas on their own merit uh, was something that was refreshing for me.
0: Yeah, me as well. Um, I really, I took... Uh... Ancient philosophy with him and medieval philosophy, and and I'm really glad I did. They were I, I had a great time in those classes. We talked a bit about how the ancients viewed life and happiness and what a happy life is and how do you go about doing that. And it turns out that, you know, their ideas were were pretty durable, um, which is pretty interesting, I think.
1: Yeah, uh, we uh, we covered how philosophy developed over the ages, right from ancient philosophy to medieval philosophy to to the cusp of enlightenment we talked about uh some of the important philosophers within those periods their ideas and how it shaped our thinking today
0: yeah this is definitely an episode that um could have gone for a really long time but um yeah with uh, nothing further from us let's just uh, get right into it uh one of the areas that you focus on in your scholarship is aristotle so we were wondering why should a modern person read about aristotle or be familiar with his work
2: So I think there's a few reasons. Um, Maybe the first is that uh, I think Aristotle, I mean, right, this is my view, he he gets a lot of things right. So if you, you know, people have been asking these philosophical questions like what is happiness or what is reality ultimately um, for thousands of years. And I think Aristotle gets the right answer to a lot of those questions. So in, in that sense, he's like worth studying. And then even where he doesn't get it right, I guess, I think the principles that he uses, like the ways that he talks about it, um, kind of the, yeah, his method uh, is helpful for doing philosophy, right, even if you come to conclusions different from his. So, yeah, I just think he has a lot to offer um, in both those ways. So what,
1: what are some of the core um, aspects of Aristotle's philosophy? That uh, something that could help modern person live their life better and stuff mm-hmm. like
2: that. yeah, I mean, I think the part that's most relevant for living your life better is the is the ethics. So he has a few books on that. I mean, Nick McCain ethics is the most famous and and it, the central question there is what what is happiness and how can we attain it right? And, and he in answering that, he develops a whole theory of virtue and so on. And, and I think that's the thing that's most directly practical, in a way. Um, I know in fol- contemporary philosophy of science, you've got a lot of people who are starting to take Aristotelian metaphysics theory of what reality and existence is, and then apply that to try to understand what we're doing in empirical science. But I guess I'm right, if you don't think that's super practical, then... Yeah, I don't know if that would if that would count, but definitely a stuff on happiness seems to me to be pretty practical, and a lot of contemporary people are working on that.
0: Are there any similarities to, well, I guess maybe talk a little bit about what he had to say about what happiness is and how you go about attaining that, and um, are there any similarities between his views on that and maybe other philosophers that were around in, in totally different parts of the world or, or different regions?
2: Yeah, so I guess at his time, I guess I haven't studied a lot of uh, Confucius myself, but from what I've read, there seems to be a lot of parallel between Aristotle and and Confucius. Both have a a kind of socially-based virtue theory, Um, right, so their views would actually be similar. And then at his time, of course, you've got Buddhism developing, but it has a fairly different conception of, of what happiness is. And... Um, you know, and the same with uh, Hindu philosophy that some of it would have been contemporary with Aristotle as well. But again, kind of going in a slightly different direction than, than he goes in.
0: And I mean, I, I'm sure you, this you could go really in depth with this, but if you could and in, uh, in some way keep it brief relatively, um, I mean, how do you go about living a happy life? What's the point of all of this? So, yeah, yeah, according to that. that's, uh, yeah, that's from Aristotle's perspective because mm-hmm. the thing I've
1: seen Aristotle most associated with the phrase is virtue ethics. Mm-hmm. So if somebody was not aware of what virtue ethics is, what would be like your short version of what virtue ethics is mm-hmm. and how using that can we apply
2: it to our, our lives in general. Yeah, so I think kind of the short answer to this is that Aristotle... So he's concerned, first of all, to define happiness. And I think he he defines it, or in a sense, like this is just what it means, the word that's translated as happiness in in ancient Greek means, is uh, a desirable life. So he's not thinking of happiness as kind of a momentary feeling, as like, hey, I felt good today, and I was happy. He's not thinking of it that way. He's thinking of it instead as something that we aim at like we want our life as a whole to be happy and so so with that understanding of happiness he starts to ask well what is it about in life that would make your life as a whole happy or desirable right the kind of life that someone would want Um, and so he goes through well what do people think some people think it would be pleasure some people think it would be like your reputation some people think um, it's money Uh, and he kind of goes through each of these and says well it doesn't really make sense that it's your reputation because that depends on other people it doesn't even really make sense i mean definitely doesn't make sense as money because you want money so that you can get whatever you want right um and it's it's not really pleasure either he thinks because the goal in life is not to like feel good at every single moment um you know he would think oh there needs to be time when you're mourning the loss of a loved one or something like that. That's all part of a natural human life. And so he doesn't think pleasure is really your goal either, right? I mean, in the sense that you don't want to feel good at every moment. That's not the point in life. The point is to do these different human activities and do them well. And so the word virtue in ancient Greek, that just means excellence. And so that's his idea like, there's certain activities that we as human beings do, do those well, which means do them virtuously. Hmm. And if you can kind of, if in your life you're able to do that, then your life was really a desirable and worthwhile life. So, I mean, that's the short answer. I mean, we can go into more detail on on stuff there if you want. Um, um, well, I'm curious about yeah. uh, what he says about contemplation
0: and how that sort of ties into living a worthwhile, virtuous life. Mm.
2: Yeah, so I guess that's kind of a final ingredient to this in a way. So So the idea here is you're living this worthwhile life by doing these sort of activities that humans do and doing them well, right, so things like friendship and, um, you know, doing, playing whatever social role you're in well, uh, and having your emotional life regulated well, right, so you're doing that in your life, and, and then he thinks there's these other activities that we do like understanding things, um, you know, doing mathematics, doing science, uh, and and just understanding like what is reality like, and that's where contemplation starts to come in. So he thinks that activity is really something that's, you know, when we've satisfied all our needs, what's left? That's what's left, and that's kind of the, the like you know, activity, the thing that we would do if we didn't have to, you know, do practical things like feed ourselves and clothe ourselves and so on. You know, we got free time, we'd we'd want to do that, and that's those are the contemplative activities. Um, And to give some... Yeah, again, this sounds kind of weird, but to give some pretty concrete examples, I mean, I still think people more or less live this way. Like, what do you do when you're, you know, done with taking care of the chores and done with your job and whatever? Um, What, you know, people go to movies. They they listen to music. Maybe they hang out with friends um, or watch a play or read a book. uh, And those are all, like, fundamentally um, contemplative activities. And so those are the, kind of the activities that Aristotle thinks are really what make life worthwhile most of all and then there's another aspect to this is he wants you to be able to do this with your own life too so look at your own life and be able to understand what's going on with it and say like yeah I did things well right so you're you can both contemplate like other things you know like uh, you know look at a sunset or watch a movie or read a book right and understand something that way and then you can contemplate your own life and uh, and see, like, well, I did, you know, what I was supposed to do in this situation, or I did the best I could, or, or whatever the case might be, um, and and it's kind of that activity is the core of what he thinks happiness is, because that's what kind of all the other activities we're doing are for, on his view, is to allow us to be able to, to contemplate, right, to just see and understand what reality is, understand who we are, um, and so on.
0: No, uh, if you know, if I think of that just from, I don't know if this is how he means it, but just from my own, you know, personal experience, obviously this is anecdotal, but, um, you know, like if I'm maybe having, like, if I'm looking at like a lazier period of my life where maybe I'm, you know, not quite as sure about what my goals are, or what I'm doing, and, you know, maybe I'm not putting as much effort into those kind of like, like maintenance activities as far as, well, these are just the things that need to get done. And, um, in whatever you know and like i just had maybe had different attitudes than i have now i don't know if this is a function of how i was living my life or maturity or if those two things are associated but it just it seems like you know if i'm more regulated and more on top of all the things i have to do and more um pointed towards some kind of goals then yeah that sort of contemplative stuff just seems to come easier like i just seem to appreciate um you know, like even if it's something as simple as the weather you know or um you know a walk in a park or in nature um, that kind of stuff is just like it's almost like, well, I've done what I needed to do it's easier mm-hmm. to kind of enjoy the things about life that' are enjoyable whereas like if I were only focused on You know the kind of the more pleasure-seeking aspects. I, you know, eventually like that just that well goes dry pretty quickly, and it's really not as easy to, you know, contemplate or enjoy. At least that's kind of how I look at it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think he would agree with that because he thinks things like if we're just seeking pleasure or entertainment or to kind of distract ourselves, that's not contemplation. That's the opposite in a sense, and even thinks those kind of act like just vegging you know in front of the tv or whatever you know if that's kind of a modern day example but i take it he would think yeah maybe you need to do that sometimes in life like you're exhausted after a hard day at work and that might be a way to relax for some people and and that's fine but that's not contemplation because contemplation is where you're not just vegging right you're actually appreciating what's there and and appreciating for what it is um yeah and i think that's his idea that's why he thinks the the moral virtues, kind of where you're keeping your emotions and taking care of your practical business, those are all necessary for contemplation because he thinks in order f- for contemplation to happen, you kind of have to be at a point where you're stable uh, in life, right? Where your body is kind of more, I don't know, if like, not just like relaxed in the sense of like, oh, right now I feel relaxed, but just in the sense of where like, hey, I'm not starving right now or I'm not, you know, any number of things not distracted right so that you can have that intellectual focus that's necessary for contemplation and so yeah i take it he thinks like contemplation has got to be part of a rather an ordered um and uh, you know I, yeah i don't know what the word for it is but yeah it's like an ordered and um excellent lived life because that's what's going to give you that ability to to engage in those higher intellectual pursuits, which is what's necessary for contemplation.
1: So this might sound a little bit academic, mm-hmm. but do you think, uh, so from what it seems to me, uh, like by what you have described Aristotle's conception of happiness, do you think Aristotle thinks happiness as, to borrow a phrase from some other philosophical thing in itself, mm-hmm. or it is as a byproduct of things that we do? Uh, that um, yeah, we yeah. Found find more meaningful in the moment and in the l- long run. Yes,
2: yeah, so I think he thinks of it as a thing in itself. Uh, okay. it, it is, I mean, he thinks the that happiness really just is the activity of contemplation. Hmm. So it's when we're contemplating, then we're happy. But since you can't just, like, contemplate all the time, you know, like we were just talking about, you can't contemplate unless you've taken care of these other practical matters in your life and... You know, are living in a certain way he thinks sure everything we're doing is kind of for the sake of being able to do that activity of contemplation okay. and so yeah he thinks that's the thing that happiness really okay. is and you know it's something you can't have in isolation so it's got to be part of this whole life hmm. um, but it's that whole life that makes contemplation possible and that also you can you know, then look back at yourself and go like oh I have this life that's a really desirable life um and yeah that's what happiness is on his view. Hmm.
1: Uh well that um that, that sounds very practical for a philosopher. <laughs> uh, Aristotle <laughs> uh, there is other branch of philosophy which is um seen as more idealistic uh which i would i sense some sort of uh, difference between those school of thoughts maybe i'm wrong uh the stoic school of philosophy. So do you think uh the, the stoics are different from what aristotelian school of philosophy would think like or uh, do you think they converge on some sense of what is happiness because as far as i'm aware mm-hmm. stoics are like uh leave the concept of happiness alone uh, that's just an attachment and it would lead to more um, disenfranchised sense of um belongingness towards uh things that you really don't want. Mm-hmm. Um, so, he, Stoics would say that uh, the concept of happiness itself is going to cause you more unhappiness. We don't even know whether happiness will exist as a thing. Mm-hmm. So, do you think, uh, do you sense uh, like who is right and who is wrong in, in, in that manner? Do you have a sense of that mm-hmm. and things like that?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, I think So Stoics have an idea of happiness that's pretty different from Aristotle's. I mean, yeah, I think you're right. They don't think of happiness as, like you're talking about, as like a thing itself. Yes. Um, But they would think if you are thinking of it as a thing itself, that is a distraction. Um, So they come up with their own kind of view of happiness, uh, which is more like not being attached to things, right? So kind of whatever comes, I'm okay with that. or, I mean, apatheia is the word they use, right? So it's just like not responding or kind of not letting things affect you. Um, and so they would, they would say, like, well, that's what happiness is, where you don't let things affect you, right? But, but yeah, that's, I think, the way you've been talking about this in terms of a, you know, thing in itself or a byproduct, yeah, for them it's kind of a byproduct. It's sort of if, if we get our emotions in order, then I'm not going to be affected by things, then I'm going to be content... And that's what being happy uh, is. Hmm. So yeah, yeah. So I guess to kind of answer the first part of your question, they have a pretty different view from Aristotle in terms of what happiness is. They they don't think it's this kind of like striving, you know, fulfill human nature, do all these natural activities so much. I think it's more like detached from things, you know, kind of stand back and realize everything is passing. You know, things happen; they're not really in our control, and be okay with that um, you yeah, know where Aristotle sort of thinks yeah maybe happiness isn't completely in your control that's fine you at least need to strive for it still um, where they kind of think no like it is in your control all you need to do is like learn to recognize that all these external things aren't in your control so to the second part of your question I mean we can circle back on some of this if you want um, but yeah I tend to uh, more agree with Aristotle's view on things. Hmm. Um, Primarily I think because his conception of human nature I find more convincing. So uh, the Stoics you know they think of human nature more as like just rationality is kind of the core of what we are. And it's Hmm. kind of like hey I can take this detached rational perspective and that's you know, when I do that, then I realize, hey, if I'm feeling a certain way, who cares? That doesn't matter. If if a loved one dies, who cares? That doesn't matter. Um if things don't go like I wanted, that doesn't matter. Because that, you know, my body isn't really me. Um I'm just this, you know, detached rationality. Where Aristotle is a more holistic view where, you no, know, as an individual human being, I am my body actually. And so my body's desires, um, and kind of their natural the natural bodily responses to things like grief and you know, desire and so on are all good. Those are all important. And if you want to live a good human life, it's a good life where those bodily, um, you know, like emotions and things like that are are ordered in a certain way, instead of where they're just like left aside and said, "Well, that's not really me."
1: Hmm. What I find fascinating about Stoicism mm-hmm. is um, it was elaborated by two people in completely different circumstances mm-hmm. in their life, both wrote about their uh, life stories and their philosophies one was a king, another one was a slave mm-hmm. and both of them came to the same conclusions that uh, life life itself is more or less random and if you try to cling to things that are temporary, you're going to lose happiness mm-hmm. So, um, but I do also agree that it's very hard for people to achieve that detached perspective of mm-hmm. rationality as somebody who is also a little bit like comes from this tradition of like buddhism and um, uh, hinduism i see that strain of thinking even in the hindu and the buddhist philosophy where they were like uh, you cannot be in control of things that happen Mm -hmm. to you Uh, so the best way to do is uh, to detach yourself from it and um, just be a watcher of events that happen to you instead of mm-hmm. identifying yourself with those events. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I said, it's very hard to do that. Most people don't do that, even in India. Like It's yeah, very hard yeah, yeah. to do
0: that, even though they come from that philosophical school of thought. It, it seems like with the Stoics, they... It's almost the idea or the um, aspiration is to be able to do this in a total vacuum, like where it's like... Uh, yeah, you, know, you mentioned like, oh, if my wife passes away, it's just my wife passing away. I'm going to look at it completely mm-hmm. rationally and detach from that. And it's just, it seems completely incompatible with human nature and probably neurobiology and a, and <laughs> a bunch of other stuff, too, you know, where it's kind of mm-hmm. like, Well, that would be great. I mean, that would be a lot easier, but it's not really taking into account the fact that, you know, while there may be individual differences in the way that people grieve or, you know, uh, how long it might take them to do that, like, that's certainly something that's going to happen. And just to, you know, take such an extreme example of, like, okay, I'll just use the person that's closest to me in my life, and if they pass away tragically, I'm just going to be, like, it's cool. It's just like if anyone else's (laughs) wife died, like, I'll be fine. You know, I just... It's like, I don't know, to me, it just seems like I want to say, like, okay, good luck with that, um, mm-hmm. you know, of course, you know, in a sympathetic way, but, <laughs> um, but yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean, like, I do think, so I do think it's, like, possible, because, um, yeah, it seems like Buddhist monks achieve something like this, and so does Stoic s- uh, sages, right, it's not easy. Uh, I mean I think the interesting question here is like is it desirable or not right so even if it's like difficult like is that what we should be shooting for and I think Aristotle would say like no that's not what you should be shooting for Mm -hmm. because that's not human nature yeah again he thinks human nature more is like grief is like a natural part of human life and so why would I want to not feel that Um, yeah so it almost does come down to this like conflict in what you think human beings are uh, right if you think well human beings are this detached rationality or human beings are kind of this you know or in the Buddhist view like you know or certain versions of the Buddhist view at least like there is no self right? so there's no human being anyway right um, yeah. and, and things like that yeah then it's going to make a lot more sense to be like why am I upset if my wife dies um, but if you think you know human being is like we're animals right like that's what we are we're animals that have rationality which is aristotle's way of understanding it and or yeah so that's one of his definitions the second definition is we're political animals right so we're animals that live in community then for him this is just crazy that you wouldn't participate, like, grieve yeah because yeah. yeah. it's like not participating in the community if you're not grieving over your wife dying right that's community you had with her and then with the wider community as well and so yeah he would think you're just not being human in that case and and that's not even desirable right so Mm. yes it is kind of like an interesting tension like just radically different views really you know based on these different conceptions of what do you think a human being is well
0: it's interesting because stoicism seems to be pretty popular Mm -hmm. um and i don't know what the timeline of that is like but at least i know that now i mean there's you can find plenty of um you know, Instagram profiles like Mm -hmm. dedicated to Stoicism (laughs) and they'll throw a Stoicism quote at you every day or whatever. And, um, you know, there's, you know, some people that have taken the idea of Stoicism and like repackaged it into something that you can use to, you know, basically, you know, like kind of live your life by and like Stoic readers where you kind of get, you know, a um, like a Marcus Aurelius quote Mm -hmm. every day, and then a Seneca one or whatever. But, um, and there's like plenty of, practical wisdom there mm-hmm. that um, it seems like could be applied in any context. I mean, for example, Marcus Aurelius basically kind of, like, in your morning routine, you know, like, just deciding to recognize you're probably going to run into some knuckleheads today. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> like, just be prepared for it, and you'll probably have a better time of it, mm-hmm. like, you know, when that inevitably happens, yeah. and you won't be thrown <laughs> off guard, or... Um,
1: Death is another thing that the uh, Stoics thought that mm-hmm. we should reflect upon, because then that is like the ultimate mirror, yeah. and everything that happens to you pales in comparison to what is going to happen to you in the end. I I kind of think that Stoics also do recognize the fact that how hard it is to achieve the, um, uh, the type of rationality yeah, or yeah. dis uh, dis attachment, if that's the right word, for normal people's to do, mm-hmm. for uh, and that is why within the Buddhist tradition and within the st- Stoic tradition there is like the meditation exercises mm-hmm. Buddhist traditions have meditation yeah, exercises yeah, yeah. and Stoic people have this reflection where they were like Im- just imagine that life is going to happen to you and there's nothing that you can do and the more involved you get the more you will run into brick walls and eventually you will have to think about the fact that uh, what is the ultimate use of me being involved so much in this um, so th- from When I take that perspective, I kind mm-hmm. of have some sympathy towards mm-hmm. stoic people, but I also f- so the Buddhists have this idea that the world is illusion mm-hmm. and it keeps tempting you back into it. Mm-hmm. So the idea was is to isolate yourself from the fact in order to achieve that sense of rationality or detachment mm-hmm. to see the things as they are mm-hmm. for itself. Mm-hmm. But again to that requires discipline for mm-hmm. you to go go ahead and isolate yourself and to either be focused and do meditate do a meditation or be as detached as uh, um as they want you mm-hmm. to be and maybe and as aristotle says maybe that's not the point that's not what you should be doing mm-hmm. at all <laughs> and maybe uh, highs and lows are both are something that mm-hmm. you should like uh, um, you should take into your stride, and that's the point of the life. Mm-hmm. So, I'm sorry, I no. totally cut you off. <laughs> no, it's okay. I mean, it's it's
0: it's interesting because I mean, the conclusion I come to, or one of them, is that well, stoicism seems like it would be really practical. Um, maybe if you weren't terribly ambitious socially, you know, and if yes, it was like, um, which I'm not making a judgment about that, but but then at the at the same time though like you mentioned and like we've talked about Marcus Aurelius was a Stoic and here's somebody with like all the responsibility in the world so um, yeah I'm not entirely sure what to make of that whereas <laughs> like and I guess like to maybe leave that to another question so if um, you know if, if I'm an Aristotelian can I do that in virtually you know any circumstance do I have to have like a certain amount of um, you know is it just like a start wherever you're at kind of thing to sort of um live virtuously and like live with some type of excellence or you know depending on your circumstances is it is that could that be a really tall order and, and you might just not be able to do that given um, how your life is shaken out And just to mm-hmm. add to that do yeah, you yeah. think Aristotle would think you're living your life
1: ethically if you just adopt a stoic mindset imagine um, I would I'm thinking Aristotle judging Marcus Aurelius he mm-hmm. would be like Aristotle would be like you are the king. You mm-hmm. are supposed to be engaged. Mm-hmm. And the moment you take this detached perspective, I think Aristotle would think that Marcus Aurelius is living an unethical life. Because he's probably, to some extent, he's just running away from these responsibilities that he, he as a king, has been given upon.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Aristotle would say that about Marcus Aurelius is, to a certain extent, I mean... Yeah, I don't know if he's like living an unethical life in the sense that he's doing yeah. wrong things, yes. right? Because yes. I mean, in a sense, like Aristotle and the Stoics agree on like, hey, you shouldn't murder people, you shouldn't yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think you would say Marcus Aurelius like you're failing to be virtuous in certain ways, yes. right? And, and instead, do. you're doing this, you know, doing this other thing that you know, is worse. Um, yeah, so I think you would agree with that. To this question of, well, could anyone just Take their Stoician approach, right? So the Stoic approach—I mean, yeah—has come up a couple times in this conversation already. You're to have someone like Epictetus, who was a slave. You know, he takes it. And Marcus Aurelius was the emperor, so it seems like anyone can kind of find some value in the Stoic approach. And I agree, there's a lot of value in it. Um, but uh, yeah, Aristotle's approach would be—I mean, if we stick strictly to what Aristotle, like himself at the time, would have said, right? Uh, I think he would have said no happiness is not even possible for, like, slaves and women, which is, you know, most of his society, right? Um, Because he thinks of happiness as this, like, you know, living this really flourishing human life, which is not possible for people, for everyone, right? If you're born into a certain situation or, you know, if you're oppressed in your society like women were at his time, that's just not, you're not going to be able to achieve those kind of virtues. Um, At least at his time, you wouldn't be. So, So yeah, his happiness does have that feature where it's kind of like, it's not there, open for everyone, and I think that's historically one of the reasons why Stoicism became really popular in the Roman Empire Um, when it was kind of, you know, you weren't you weren't kind of like standing out in your community anymore because you weren't a bigger, you know, in Aristotle's time the small city-states, you kind of made a big difference in your community, and that's what like the virtuous person is like Um, where as you get a you know something like an empire you don't stand out that much and so now people are kind of you know it's harder to kind of see yourself as like am i really living as this outstanding person or do i just need to learn you know kind of go more in myself and find happiness inside in kind of a more stoic way but okay so that being said though um contemporary aristotelians tend to want to like expand this though and say no like if we just, I mean, what we have an obligation to do is perhaps make it so that the political conditions are such that more people can engage in Aristotelian happiness, right? So Aristotle was kind of like, yep, you're a slave, too bad for you. Um, I guess you can't really pursue this, right? I mean, yeah, that's kind of his attitude. And, and, you know, people who defend that, here to take a basic Aristotelian approach now, obviously don't say that. What they say is, well, What Aristotle already was kind of hinting at, uh, which is, this is why politics is so important, because we need to make society such that the most people as possible can engage in this Aristotelian happiness. Hmm. Um, And I guess one other thing on this issue is that I take it like Plato, uh, who's contemporary with Aristotle... His view is more like anyone can do it as well, because his view tends to be more like just do the best you can in your situation, right? Yeah, you're not gonna doesn't mean you're gonna hit the like highest ideal, you know, because your situation might be pretty bad. Um, but if you just do the best you can, then you do achieve a kind of happiness as an individual, and and I take it that's you know Socrates who appears in Plato's dialogues. He says, hey, I'm willing to talk to slaves, he's willing to talk to women, he's willing to talk to all these people in his society, and kind of thinks, hey, they're actually better than the well-off people in general, in terms of wisdom. He thinks at least they kind of recognize that, you know, they don't know everything um, or these other people think they do. Hmm. And yes, yeah, so I dig it. The platonic approach was more in line with, yeah, if everyone just kind of does the best that they possibly can in their circumstances there's a kind of happiness there. So it was more inclusive, although it's also not stoic either. It's more like Aristotle's in the sense that's based on human nature, having, you know, kind of allowing our natural emotions to express themselves, but in a healthy way.
0: It almost seems like, given um, Aristotle's, you know, insistence upon finding the mean between Mm -hmm. excess and deficiency, that... You know, that could kind of, one could implement stoicism within that framework of, mm-hmm. okay, well, maybe right now is the time to exercise the virtue of detachment based mm-hmm. on the situation that I'm in, but maybe my overall life is going to be more of one where I'm trying to attain happiness, um, and maybe that's one way or those two mm-hmm. of those could be compatible. Um, I guess which brings me to my next question. So, was there a point somewhere historically, you know, downstream from you know ancient times where these two philosophies um you know may have been compatible or or began to intermingle in the in the overall culture
2: yeah yeah so i mean there was historically which is kind of in late antiquity right so that'd be i don't know like first to fifth century a.d and then in the middle ages as well you have both of these traditions sort of respected and, and people are kind of like weaving them together, kind of trying to take what are the insights that Stoicism can give us, what are the insights that Aristotle can give us, what are the insights Plato can give us, and, and kind of working those together. And so, yeah, a lot of medieval philosophy is, is like that, um, you know, and kind of like in Thomas Aquinas, for example, is kind of the major Western medieval philosopher. You know, he'll quote Aristotle all the time, and that's he's basically an Aristotelian, but he'll also quote Seneca, who's a Stoic, um, you hmm. know, and quote him positively as, like, oh, here's a good point, uh, you know, that Seneca makes. Um, and so, so yeah, these were kind of, you know, beginning, I mean, early on, really, uh, in the, I guess, would be 3rd century A.D., with, uh, with Plotinus, <laughs> who's a, you know, a Neoplatonist, Plotinus takes a lot of Stoic ideals and kind of puts them together with Aristotle and so on. Yeah, because I think, I mean, and this is consistent with Aristotle's own methodology, because he says, I think it's in book two of the metaphysics, sort of the beginning of book two, that the truth is kind of like a, a barn door, like anyone can hit it. Like anyone hits it, right? We all get little parts of it. No one gets the whole thing. And so that's why we need to learn from even those that we disagree with. And, right, that's the point Aristotle is making there. He's kind of, you know, we need to learn from those who came before, those that we disagree with, because they're getting part of the truth. And, 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 yeah, I mean, the way you're suggesting, you can kind of take the Stoic insight and then fit it into an overall Aristotelian framework. Or the other direction, right, if you're a Stoic, you could say, like, well, I think the Stoic framework's the best, but let me take these Aristotelian insights and maybe help modify... Stoic framework hmm.
1: So I want to ask you something uh, about your interest in 19th century philosophy mm-hmm. too because I know you are interested in that yeah, yeah. So before we begin with that, <laughs> I would like to ask what is your view about uh, like enlightenment? I know we're moving mm-hmm. away from Aristotle yeah, 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 yeah. to enlightenment as a big leap mm-hmm. but uh and we hopefully we should get to post enlightenment also mm-hmm. which is what 19th century mostly is because um, yeah. uh, but what your view about this enlightenment as a philosophical school of thought and how big of an impact it has had in what philosophy is today
2: mm-hmm. Yes yeah, so it's had a major impact um my view on it is not super positive in a way, like, in a way, yeah, like, it's kind of, Enlightenment is the Dark Ages, I guess, from an Aristotelian perspective because most of the thinkers or the, kind of, especially the early Enlightenment thinkers were anti-Aristotelian um, and, you know, I think I got a lot of things wrong there. Hmm. Um, at the same time, I mean, the real like, high, like, German Enlightenment thinkers like Kant, I mean, I think he's like a first class, like, thinker and, you know, and he's right up there. Uh, with the greats like Plato and Aristotle. Um, And so if he's like the representative of the Enlightenment, then yeah, there's a lot of good stuff there. Um, You know, so it depends whether, you are you know, is Kant your Enlightenment person or is like Voltaire? Because I don't like Voltaire, I don't really like um, Descartes that much, but um, but yeah, someone like Kant who really kind of takes insights that Voltaire and Descartes and so on had, but then really works them out thoroughly into a you know full system. I mean, yeah, I think he's back to doing like really good philosophy in the way if, that like the Greeks if did. If
1: I'm right, Kant mm-hmm. Kant was the person uh that brought an end to enlightenment to some extent. Yeah. Um I don't mean it in terms of moral. Yeah. Uh, I mean it in terms of philosophical terms because um he was the first person to question whether we can actually know the thing called the big T that is the truth Yeah. yeah. Um, that was the whole enlightenment project I mean it did not stop the enlightenment project it still carried on in yeah, terms yeah. of Bertrand Russell and stuff like that later mm-hmm. but uh, he was the first person to actually start questioning whether uh, uh, what the enlightenment people were talking about rationality and science and finding mm-hmm. the big T out there whether we can actually find it or not Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so you wouldn't count him as as enlightenment. I would
1: uh, I would yeah. ca- count him as enlightenment, but like the last yeah, enlightenment, like the last, ph- yeah. last enlightenment philosopher. Because uh, mm. if I trace the history properly, and I'm not a philosopher, I'm I, I might be completely off on this. Once Kant stops like mm-hmm. working his enlightenment, and he reaches the conclusions that he is just yeah. completely using the enlightenment ideas, and he works it up to its last point Mm -hmm. you basically have people abandoning the enlightenment ideas you have the existentialist and the romantic movement Um, people who are like we can't know the truth so like how do we ever get to know what the meaning of life is and like should we even try to chase the truth and things like that
2: yeah yeah, and I mean, this is where I, I kind of said, like, it depends what we mean by Enlightenment, too. Because okay. I think, like, the French and the British Enlightenment were pretty different from the German Enlightenment. Yes. Right? Where Kant is, I mean, Kant, like, himself claims to be, like, a representative of the Enlightenment. Yes. Right? He has a whole little uh, you know, treatise or whatever it is on, on this called, like, uh, what is it called? Like, it's on Enlightenment or something like that. And so... Um, Yeah, so he takes himself to be an Enlightenment thinker, but you're right. He's pretty different than kind of the British Enlightenment thinkers, like Voltaire or someone like that. Yeah, because he he kind of doesn't think you can just kind of, hey, we're going to just figure out like the ultimate truth now, right? Um, And yeah, and so he ends up being more influential on Romanticism and on these like anti-Enlightenment kinds of philosophies. Hmm. Um, even though he himself would think, like, I'm the real representative of the Enlightenment. And, yeah, that is what, kind of where you get this interesting thing. And so, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, if we talk about the Enlightenment as, like, the French and British Enlightenment, I think that seems like a new Dark Ages to me <laughs> because, like, it's anti It's like, yeah, they think they figured out everything where their, like, systems don't make any sense. Um, where if Enlightenment we mean, like, Kant, which, you know, has even though it's not the same at all as like Aristotle or Platonism, it still has like that really sort of like thoroughly worked out rational framework um, and and kind of, right, and more careful too in, in the sense of saying what can we know, what can't we know, and let's be really careful about uh, that uh, you know, yeah again I, I kind of think Kant is, is good like that's the the good kind of enlightenment yeah. Um, but yeah the other one the earlier enlightenment yeah i I don't really see a whole lot positive in it except that it was necessary you know to kind of deal with the breakdown of the you know church at the time and Hmm. and kind of like well where do we turn if we don't have this moral authority we're gonna have to turn to reason and i mean yeah that is kind of where you have to turn Hmm. um and and yeah, so I kind of read the history of more like, and all those people were building to Kant who actually like worked this out um, Yeah, with Kant and then Hegel, you know, after Kant, just kind of immediately after, who kind of work out that tradition, fix all its problems um, or most of its problems. And those are the real like enlightenment thinkers. Um but but yeah, that is kind of a debate, you know, within philosophy. Even what counts as like the actual enlightenment.
0: Yeah, I was wondering if you could actually mm-hmm. break that down a little bit more for maybe, um,
2: like honestly, for me, but also yeah. for other people <laughs> listening
0: who might not be as familiar with with a Voltaire, and maybe if you could, you know, juxtapose those two, um, like Aristotle and mm-hmm. Voltaire, and, and and maybe why they're they're so different.
2: Yeah. So. So, I guess one of the things is that the like someone like Voltaire is very like anti traditional right so him and Descartes is kind of this way on like a philosophical level um so Voltaire is perhaps more on like an ethical and social level um but but yeah like kind of this idea of and and again there's a caricature in a sense right like'm oversimplifying a little bit but there's this kind of like rejection of what came before right um and so would you say even almost just like for the sake of it or yeah or it's just not even understanding it right it's just like throw that out because it must have been bad um and let's do something new right instead of let's try to understand that and let's try to learn from it it's more like nope that was wrong let's do this new thing now um and so so i guess you know parallel Kind of when I take again, these are oversimplifications. But Descartes and then Voltaire too. Um, so Descartes kind of did this on a like more theoretical level, where he was like, "Let's get rid of this like Aristotelian way of understanding reality. That doesn't work anymore. Um, I've got my whole new way and my way. You know, I just am starting over from scratch." Uh, and he says that he's like, "I'm gonna you know tear down everything that came before and just start over." Um, so I think that attitude. Right, so Aristotle's the opposite, right? Aristotle is saying, we need to learn from our predecessors because even if they made some mistakes, they still got to the truth in a lot of ways, and so we should be building on them. (laughs) Um, And so that's where you get, like, the opposite. Uh, And, uh, yeah, Voltaire kind of does this more, I mean, famously, with a sort of attitude towards religion, right? Like, throw out, you know what has been like the religious and social tradition of Europeans for centuries and let's just start over from scratch uh you know again based on just rationality um right and again that's also anti-aristotelian aristotle would be like wait we don't just throw stuff out we you know we criticize it maybe in certain ways but we also need to see what was good in it what was helpful in it um yeah, and so I think that's kind of the major difference I see, is these early Enlightenment people just want to throw everything out the window, and because they did that, they make like a lot of mistakes, right? They start over, and and like what happens is like really interesting, but they get a lot of things wrong. They come up with problems that's like insolvable on their own system, and so, so it's not until you get to Kant, who you have someone who's a little more balanced uh, in his attitude, where again, he'll have this kind of enlightenment attitude like, well, I'm doing my own new thing now. Um, but he's learning from his predecessors, and then he also is just more careful where, you know, he wants to make sure, you know, where did people come before him get things right? Where did they overstep? Um, and he's very critical of people, you know, of traditions that came before him, but at the same time doesn't just want to throw them out the window, yeah. right? And so, I think, I mean, a good comparison is Kant's attitude towards religion compared to Voltaire so Voltaire is just like throw it out like this is all nonsense um
1: yeah
2: where Kant is more nuanced he's not super like hey I'm you know I'm just going to defend Christianity here uh but he also is not like very harsh on it either right he thinks it can offer a lot of good especially when interpret in the right way um you know he wants to give kind of a rationalistic interpretation of christianity but yeah again for him it's not let's throw this out the window it's more like let's see what was here let's see what was true in it and let's kind of go from there where voltaire is going to be like nope all that was nonsense um yeah and so that's why again this early enlightenment is i mean in my mind is kind of a misnomer because it's like let's throw ourselves back into the dark ages (laughs) where we don't you know where we yeah, We're not going to, like, learn from people who came before us. We're just going to, like, throw them out without any good reason to do that. Um, or, you know, for just, like, political reasons. Like, well, I don't like the church, and therefore I'm going to have to, like, throw out everything associated with it. Um, you yeah, know, I just don't think that's, like, a helpful, like, way to approach things in general, right? Um, you know, even if you don't like something that doesn't mean there's not a lot of good and truth in that and learning to see that as the important thing instead of just like throwing it out um, and starting over yeah,
1: yeah. As, go. <laughs> okay uh as far well as i know kant's most work is a response to david hume mm-hmm. yeah because david hume was like one of the greatest enlightenment thinker yeah, yeah. and i like i personally like hume uh-huh. uh, i uh, i mean i I have like s- bit of sympathy towards Enlightenment because we have today's scientific method established during Enlightenment era. Mm-hmm. For example, mm-hmm. Bacon, John Stuart yeah. Mill, they've worked out how like how to really understand causality and things like mm-hmm. that. And like I know the, there is a Popperian version of it mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> that comes later, but um, that's more or less an accumulation of what has happened before, but can't. V- I think we also need to stress this fact that anti-enlightenment doesn't mean Mm anti-reason because like uh, the philosophers who come later do put reason as the thing that is important so they Mm -hmm. they don't argue illogically they just say that um, some of the tenets of enlightenment don't work work upon itself Mm -hmm. Um, so uh, I do like from my personal perspective as I read the history of philosophy I see like the Kant working very much within the Enlightenment tradition yeah. but the person who after whom the Enlightenment doesn't like go further you have like mm-hmm. uh, Kierkegaard and Nietzsche mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. and uh, he- Hegel is another person but like then philosophy kind of takes political turn too yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. with Marx adopting Hegel and stuff like that mm-hmm. so uh, so from that perspective I was thinking Kant as like the last person to use Enlightenment yeah so uh, now since we are in the 19th century uh, European mm-hmm. philosophy I want to ask you a I'm question you really <laughs> yeah, <go> I, <laughs> I want to
0: like, put a, like, a pin historically and where uh, you're okay. at but, uh, but there's one more like Aristotle question I sure. want to ask. <laughs> and I'm kind of curious so you know Aristotle being as influential on uh, you know a, a St. Thomas Aquinas yeah. and Christian thought in the middle ages yet not having the same view of God that they would ad- adopt entirely mm-hmm. um i'm curious if we could just wildly speculate (laughs) what you know and aristotle would have might have thought based on you know his framework about how Hmm. you know his view of reality and his view of god how that influenced culture down the line from him and sort of
2: what he might make of that so you're asking like, hey, if Aristotle could kinda of look at things now and be like, what would he think? Or well, or uh, what or, 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 or is the question more like, hey, would er you know, what if Aristotle lived like three hundred years later? Would he have become Christian or Or yeah,
0: if like well okay, so like I guess maybe coming from okay, Aristotle has this view of God and it's not anthropomorphic mm-hmm. and it's um sort of like the first cause, mm-hmm. um forces of nature kind of thing reason Mm -hmm. why things happen but not necessarily a loving God that you would pray to Mm -hmm. that listens to your prayers and Mm -hmm. things like that yet he was so heavily influential on Christian thought which Mm -hmm. obviously has those components Mm -hmm. to it and I'm curious Mm -hmm. what he might make of that.
2: Yeah so I mean yeah I think you could it's hard to tell what he would make of it right because it's before but yeah I think he would go and kind of one of the two directions that medieval Aristotelians went. Um, so you have people like Thomas Aquinas uh, in Europe who who go in the direction of like, hey, I'm Aristotle, but then I also have faith, uh, you know, in the revelation, you know, in the Bible and in the church and so on. And, and so that faith tells me things that are true that you can't know through reason but that don't contradict reason either, right? And so he would think, yeah, we can't know through reason that God, like, answers prayers or interacts in history or things like that. Um, but he thinks, I can know that through faith, and yes, you know, you can't prove that faith is true using reason, right? So Aquinas makes that distinction, right? So you could have Aristotle who would just become Aquinas, right? to would be like, oh, I have my Aristotelian views, and then, hey, this, you know, Christianity is actually, like, convincing and I actually take that on faith you know not on reason but on on faith Um, or right so that's the one direction he could have gone or the other direction is kind of how some of the uh, major Islamic philosophers went and I'm thinking specifically probably of Al Farabi because he's he's most clearly in this direction and and Jewish philosophers like I think Maimonides goes this way too Um, is to sort of say well look Aristotle's philosophy is right um yeah we can figure all this out by reason but we still need religion as like a social it has a social function for average people right everyone's not going to be a philosopher and so they need to be they need to have a way to relate to the absolute right to relate to reality this kind of in more anthropomorphic terms so Mm -hmm. they need to think about God as like I pray to it and it's kind of like this person-like thing um And so Aristotle himself probably has that view, it seems, uh, at his time, right? So, you know, there's like Zeus and Hera and Athena, right? And I take it Aristotle's view, I mean, this is kind of speculative, but this seems to be the basic scholarly concept or consensus these days on Aristotle's own uh, relationship to, to Greek religion would have been something like... Yeah, all that's, like, strictly speaking, false, right? Like, you know, there's Zeus not doing any of this stuff that we say he does in the myths, and when we're celebrating these festivals, like, yeah, that's not actually true. What's true is what we know philosophically or scientifically. But those are still, like, really important. Um, You know, it's important that people have those myths, and it helps our community kind of come together. Um, And so... Yeah, and so people like al-Farabi, kind of in the Middle Ages, in the Islamic world, thought, hey, that's kind of how it is maybe with Islam as well, right? It's, it's kind of this, you know, it talks about God in more in like a, you know, anthropomorphic way sometimes, but, yeah, that's helpful for people who aren't doing philosophy. But if you're doing philosophy, you kind of realize, well, those anthropomorphic <laughs> things are false... And maybe there's other, you know, there's not, like, one true religion either. There's different cultures that have their own religions. Um, but we do need religion, you know, for, for its social function. Hmm. So I think, yeah, if you go back to kind of the original question then, I think, yeah, what would Aristotle do kind of in light of this later thing? He'd either become, you know, someone like Al-Farabi, who would be like, well, I'm doing my philosophy, and religion is, you know, a way of popularizing that, getting people to kind of... Live well and to help educate people in the community, um, or he'd be like a Thomas Aquinas, <laughs> is like hey, I'm doing this, and then well, I you know have faith in Christ actually, and now I accept all these truths on the basis of faith, and I think they're literally true. Um, but you know, and you know, but they and they don't contradict reason, you know. And we go and we do philosophy and theology, uh, but you're actually, you know, in that case, he would accept things that you can't prove rationally. In the former case, in the Al-Farabi case, you don't really accept those things that you can't prove rationally. You just say, yeah, those are, you know, ways, metaphorical ways of talking, so other people, you know, you know, it's it's kind of, if I explain to you, you should be virtuous, because if you don't, you're going to be unhappy. You might be like, what are you talking about? I'm going to be unhappy if I don't live a virtuous life. It looks like if I get, like, money, power, like, sex, like, that's great. Um, Where you know where if you tell people like hey no you're going to go to hell if you do those things a lot of people would not do those things if you tell them they're going to go to hell right where if you just say well you're not going to reach true happiness in life they won't care right and so that's why I take it even people like Plato and Aristotle at their time seem to not be against telling you know these kind of like myths about torture in the afterlife or heaven or something you know their own versions of that kind of thing um yeah, well, even if they didn't think that was literally true. Hmm. Yeah. I think it's easy now to look on yeah. that
0: stuff and just think, like, well, look at how nefarious organized religion is. And, you know, it's like they're using fear to control people. And, mm-hmm. like, clearly you're not going to burn in hell for eternity if mm-hmm. you, you know, steal a piece of, like, like, a candy bar from a store if you're yeah, a kid yeah. or something like that. Like, why? who would say that to somebody that's nuts? But at least, you know, like, from the from a different perspective. It's kind of like, well, they weren't really trying to do that necessarily. They're mm-hmm. kind of taking into account the fact that, you know, even if people have the intellectual capacity to do philosophy, most people probably just don't even want to. It doesn't even mm-hmm. sound fun to them. Yeah. So yeah. what's some other way? And then it, it seems a lot less... At least from that perspective, like this sort of like nefarious, like we have to, you know, control the populace and because, mm-hmm. you know, like we're evil. And I'm sure the Illuminati has something to do with it and the lizard people <laughs> or whatever. But
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's kind of the interesting thing, right? Because the Enlightenment, the early Enlightenment sort of cast this as nefarious, right? It's like you're trying to control us and so on. Um, but I think what Aristotle would look at this and, you know, what people like Al Farabi looked at it as is. No, like we're t- trying to tell you the truth in a way you can understand it, right and if you can't understand like what's literally true, right that you're gonna be unhappy and that's like the worst thing that can possibly happen to anyone uh, if you're not gonna like understand that, if I tell you that you're gonna f- not find that convincing to you know changing your behavior, I'll tell you in a way you can understand, which is you're gonna suffer pain forever uh, but, you know and and yeah, it's not and it's not even you know especially in And someone like Al-Farabi's view, and I mean, the same goes, you know, with a lot of Christian teachings as well that people like Aquinas would think are metaphorical. Um, Yeah, it's kind of, it's not to control you. If you want to understand the philosophy, you're welcome to it. Uh, They see it as, you know, a stepping stone is first you're going to understand it and kind of like, I'm afraid of this because I'm going to go to hell. And then, you know, if you want a deeper understanding, maybe you realize, well, wait, no, I'm not afraid because I'm going to go to hell. I'm afraid because this is just not good. And that's, like, not what I want at all. Um, And so, yeah, yeah, I don't think, I guess, yeah, another way it's not nefarious is they're not trying to hide anything. It's just more like, we're not going to tell you kind of the literal truth until you're ready to hear that. Or if we do tell you the literal truth, we'll also tell you this, you know, more metaphorical thing because that's the thing you're ready to hear.
1: Hmm. Well thanks for asking that question. Sure. <laughs> so yeah, let's <laughs> Hegel and Nietzsche uh, and pick up where we left off. No, and that's actually that's a perfect segue to the type of question I was thinking about because as you mentioned. Um, during uh, the medieval times, we had Thomas Aquin- mm-hmm. Aquinas and people who thought religion was important. Mm-hmm. but then come come the Enlightenment people, who are like religion is a form of social control, a bunch yeah, of yeah. myths given to you by the church, and yeah. we demand reason as the most important thing. Yeah. And that leads to wo- like a very widespread skepticism among the general population in Europe, and the re- religion as its and. One thing credit by credit is due. That leads to like separation of church and state, which Mm -hmm. is, uh, for me personally, (laughs) very important. Uh, uh, But then you have bunch of philosophers later who grapple with this question of what are the consequences of uh, not having religion. Mm -hmm. People like, um, I mean, Kant was one person. He did write a lot about religion. But then you have Kierkegaard. Nietzsche, these are the like the two existen- se- existentialists who are like everybody talks about. Nietzsche famously announced <laughs> death of God, everybody knows. Like, like mm-hmm. maybe you could elaborate what actually death of God means. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's supposed to be a tragedy. Um, yeah. uh, Kierkegaard said that um, faith, religious faith helps him to deal with existential angst. Can't mm-hmm. uh, famously put on the moral principle. Mm-hmm. about do unto others what do you expect others to do to you mm-hmm. and he said uh, Christianity had something to do with it so these are the people who said that religion uh, they grappled with the consequence of the society becoming r- irreligious mm-hmm. and what, do, what are your thoughts about that uh, how much do you think uh, there is um, there is something to be uh, said about that fact mm-hmm. about uh, once uh, the society becomes more and more irreligious uh, the moral uh, foundations of it becomes uh, very harder to replace and stuff like that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think, I mean, to step back a little, because I, I think what's kind of underlying this shift that happens in the 19th century, um, and I guess like begins earlier, is is that there's, within Christianity, and especially within Protestant Christianity, Uh, There's this tension between almost like two different ways, two totally different ways of understanding religion. So the one is this like social understanding of religion, which is kind of what we're just talking about, right? Where, you know, religion has this really important social function that even if we're only telling myths that aren't actually true, so what? Like this is really important socially because it kind of gets everyone kind of accepting the same moral code, kind of living according to the same customs, having the same basic values, right? And so. Right, again, that's how people like Aristotle or Al Farabi, even Aquinas to some degree, are gonna say, Yeah, religion is playing that really important role, so we don't wanna get rid of it, even that's though we think it's it. false, right? Yeah. So there's that social kind of religion. Um and then but kind of what starts to develop, I guess, is in late medieval Christianity especially, and then finally really flourishes in, in Protestantism is this Like personal kind of religion. This understanding of religion is my personal relationship to God or to the absolute, right? So I'm coming with my own personal beliefs, my own personal interpretation of the Bible, and then eventually, you know, goes into where you might not even be Christian anymore, but you still have your own personal religion, um, Hmm. your own personal way of thinking about things. Right, so now in that case, religion is not social. It's just kind of your own personal beliefs about things, um, or about kind of what ultimate reality is. Um, Okay, so that tension is there, like, in in Protestant Christianity. Um, so what what starts to happen, I think, in the Enlightenment is people are like, well, let's get rid of the social kind of religion. Because they're, yeah, it's like looks yeah. social control. And they don't like it for various reasons. Um, you know, a lot of them is just like, I don't particularly like the church's way of doing that. And so let's just get rid of all of it, right? Yeah. Um and so so that starts to happen um and and eventually you know so that starts to happen in the earlier enlightenment thinkers like in hume and and uh and so on but eventually you know in the 19th century that becomes more like trickles down into society at large Uh, and that's what what i think nietzsche means by the death of god is it's no one, like, respects this anymore, right? So they might even say they believe in it, they might go to church, all of that, but it doesn't have any, like, real... they fear, like, it doesn't, like, invoke any fear in their life, right? They're not really afraid of it. Um, And they don't really respect it in that sense. And so, and that's why it's a tragedy in a way, because he's sort of saying this whole, like, social religion with its morality that goes along with it, with kind of our shared values, our shared community... Is gone And, like, we killed it, and now there's nothing to do. Like, it's gone, and, and you can't... So this is not even a claim about whether God exists or not. It's just a claim of, like, it's no longer operative socially, right? It no longer is having that social influence, and, and God no longer is having that social influence. Right, and so Nietzsche kind of thinks, like, okay, it's gone, good <laughs> riddance, because, like, you know, life needs to move on anyway, right? Yes. So he kind of has this idea of yeah, these things happen and life, you know, is gonna to continue to go and you know you become the superman. Yeah, so now it's time <laughs> to come up which is in a sense his own yes. it's kinda of like we need to make our own religion now. Yes. And and if you're one of the great people, at least. Like, if you're the Superman, you're going to... Your own personal religion, right? Again, like its, not the social one.
1: With its own set of morality.
2: Yeah, with its own set of morality. And now, either that's going to become the dominant one, or maybe each individual will become a Superman. And we each come up with our own morality, right? And, you know, he doesn't really have a fully worked out idea of what's supposed to happen. But, yeah, that's kind of his idea. Is like, now, the social thing is done, you come up with your own morality and your own... You know, So he kind of takes that idea of this personal religion to the extreme, hmm. gets God out of it too, because he's like, I'm just making this up, right? It's yes. not like I'm receiving some revelation from God that's, you know, my personal interpretation of the Bible is God telling me how to interpret it. He's like, no, I'm making this up, and no one sort of get in the way of that, right? And so God needs to get out of this picture, because God's like someone else, you know, there in my way. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's, like, Nietzsche's sort of, like, response here, right? Um, the other thing is, I guess you mentioned with, like, Kant and Kierkegaard, and I think they give you the other two responses to this idea of having a personal religion, right? So Nietzsche's, again, is kind of like, so if you have a personal religion, go for it, right? Make up That means you're making up your own personal morality, your own everything. Um, where Kierkegaard, his view seems to be more like know what i need to do and you know yes it's going to be a personal religion but it's one where i'm going to receive something from god right so i get some kind of like faith which is something i can't make happen for myself hmm. and then i accept that i mean maybe it doesn't happen to me too right so in in fear and trembling for instance the sort of s- synonymous author that's like writing it just like i don't have faith i'm like i respect faith i wish i had it but i don't um Uh, You know, and he's talking about Abraham's faith and, you know, saying, like, that's great. And it's, you know, that's like the most amazing thing and the hardest thing to do. And I can't do it. Um, Right. So it's not saying, you know, on, on that view, it's kind of like this is not in my power. But, you know, if that moment comes and I can accept it, that's the most authentic thing to do. Right. And so so, again, it's kind of the same idea of like a personal relationship to the absolute, But now, instead of in Nietzsche, where it's like, I just assert, you know, it's me doing what I want, um, (laughs) this is more like, no, I need to be open to something happening that I can never predict and never expect, and when it happens, I've got to accept it, and that's going to be really difficult, but I need to do that. Um, So those are kind of two responses. Kant, I think, is like a third one, where... So both Nietzsche and Kierkegaard share this idea of being anti-rational, like they sort of, you know, is just pretty explicit about it, like, yep, reason doesn't give you truth, that's just like your own will to power, if you want to believe in reason, that's fine, that's your own religion, um, but, like, rationality does, doesn't doing what everyone thinks it's doing, right, it's not giving you the absolute truth, um. And Kierkegaard kind of thinks the same thing as well, right? He would be less radical in the sense that I take it Kierkegaard would think mathematics, you know, gives you some truth. Hmm. Um, But, yeah, he would think it doesn't give you the absolute, though. You don't really get the full picture of, of reality through rationality. Whereas Kant is more like, you know, you do, like, sure, reason doesn't give you the ultimate truth, but it does give you, like, everything you need to know in order to live. And so... So Kant thinks, hey, we can do science, we can use reason to figure out the world as far as we could ever understand it by using science, and we can do ethics, and, you know, figure out how to live. Um, And so on Kant's view, it's kind of like reason can figure out everything we need, at least, even if it doesn't give us everything. Um, And so, you know, Kant kind of goes back, again, to this more like, so my personal religion, again, can be sort of yeah, I might have my own personal way of expressing that or thinking about it or relating to it, and that's fine. Now I can do that, although, you know and we can still function socially because we can all agree on the rational stuff. And I think he's still gonna have a place for the social side of religion too. Um you know, again, different people interpret cotton in different ways here. But yeah, I take it he would think, hey, religion might help people live morally, so great. Like yes. go ahead and be you know, he he's just not gonna think faith is giving you this extra thing that you could like never figure out or something like that. He's going to be more like reason can get us everything we need but still like religion might be a helpful thing either socially or if you personally like thinking about things a certain way great. Um, and so Kant is kind of a pro-rational side there. Um, you know so yeah again you get to these three views where Nietzsche is just like, your own personal faith, it's not reason, it's your own personal, like, will. You know, it's not faith anymore, you've got to make your own religion. You know, Kierkegaard is more like, it's not reason, it's, you know, this faith that's coming from something totally outside of you might take hold of you sometime, and be willing, you know, let that happen if it happens. And then Kant's more like, you yeah, know, all that, yeah, reason, you know, all that's kind of nonsense, basically, I think, on Kant's view is... You know, it would be more like, yeah, reason can figure out how, what we should do, what's right and wrong, and, you know, what we can know about the world through science. That's it. That's all we really need. And so, but still, you might want to go to church because if that's helpful for you to, you know, have community, to find like minded people. And you might want to have your own personal beliefs if that's helpful for you. Um, so he's not anti religious, you know, as a result, but he's not really pro religious in the sense that Kierkegaard is. Um, Yeah, Yeah. so I think those are kind of the three different views you could have to this kind of modern sense of religion, where religion is this kind of personal thing um, and not so much like a social thing.
1: Yeah, uh, that's interesting because uh, there are people who struggle with these sort of things. And Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that we do study is religious struggles. Mm And a lot of people who kind of have the struggles with some people explicitly go against religion and some people want to revive some aspects of religion Mm -hmm. I would say Kant kind of restores both of it he does recognize the absurdity that is there Mm -hmm. and um, but also restores some of the functions that could be psychologically helpful for certain Mm -hmm. people to have that sort of religious faith um, which is uh which could work for some people Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's interesting so we talked about religion we talked about reason we talked about (laughs) how to achieve happiness and stuff (laughs) like that so there are many uh, there are many uh, smart people out there who look at philosophy in general as a field and think uh, it's just uh, ideas in the air Mm -hmm. Uh, and, like, it's not very helpful for in practical terms and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's so, just
0: people talking in circles, <laughs> yeah. like, just saying the same thing over and over yeah. again. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, like, it's
1: uh, they they're too much time in their hands and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So what, as somebody who actually does this for a living, mm-hmm. what would be your response to them? Like, how would you explain it to them that these ideas have mm-hmm. a trickle-down effect into broader culture? Mm-hmm. Because they don't come from, like... They don't come out organically. It's somebody has worked out these reasons and stuff like that in the academia, mm-hmm. and from that source, you have the trickle down effect, which mm-hmm. then affects the broader cu- culture as such. So, uh, but that's my view. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm interested in knowing your view to so, uh, somebody who asked that question.
2: Yeah. So I guess I mean, to someone who says like philosophy is talking about things all up in the air, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think. Well, yeah, but we're all living our life according to things that are all up in the air. It's just we don't recognize that they're all up in the air, right? Because we all live our life on the basis of a bunch of assumptions about, like, hey, it's, you know, like, obvious one is, like, it's wrong to kill people. And that's a pretty, like, easy to figure out why it's wrong to kill people assumption. But you live your life on other assumptions, too, that are a little more sophisticated. Like, humans, you know, have rights. Well, you're, like, living your everyday life as if that was true, right? If someone... You know wrongs you you call them out on it or if you know or whatever it takes or um you know so you're living your life or what it you know what you think of a human being is like what is happiness you have some kind of conception of it in your everyday life and maybe you have diff- a few different ones right mm-hmm. um, so we're all kind of always dealing with and using these ideas that are all up in the air the only reason why they don't seem up in the air in everyday life is because you're just not asking anything about them, right? You're just assuming, oh, no, that's obviously true. Where if you start to ask about it, you realize, no, it's not obviously true. And that's why it's in the air, right? Because it just seems, like, groundless. Um, uh, yeah, and so that's what I kind of, yeah, of people who kind of, like, pose it in that way, like, right, like, this is all about ideas up in the air, I say, yeah, you're living your life on the basis of ideas that are up in the air. What philosophy is trying to do is figure out of these ideas that we're living according to, which ones are better, which ones actually make more rational sense, which ones are like coherent with other ones, right, which ones are consistent, Um, and then which ones, you know, ultimately, you know, are, are more true, and how do we figure that out, and so, so yeah, I think that's the value, and then like you said, because, you know, certain people do this kind of on a really high academic level, they kind of change culture over time and change the way that what people take for granted and it does trickle down right and so you know what we take for granted as as modern people is radically different from what medieval people took for granted right that's why you know for us you know whether you have you know faith in a certain religion or not that's like a real question for pretty much anyone to one degree or another right it's you know even if you're deeply religious or you're not that's going to be kind of like hey that's a question out there um where I take it for your average medieval you know, person, that wouldn't have been a question. You'd have been like, I grew up in England. I'm Catholic. You know, <laughs> you know, it's the 12th century, right? Like what? Yeah, of course. Um, that wouldn't have been like a burning question on people's mind. Why? Because these philosophical ideas have just changed the way we conceptualize ourselves and what we think is self-evident.
1: Yeah. Uh, I would also like to add like this uh, not so Long ago, around 1950s, when mm. the UN started to think about this conception of human rights, yeah. it was being challenged a lot yeah. by uh, academia with this regards to what actu- can we actually have human rights and yeah. humans do have rights or not. Another thing was would be the animal rights. Yeah, yeah. We do take for granted that animals have rights and we should treat them ethically to some yeah. extent. yeah. yeah but that's not something that has been historically taken for granted yeah. it is usually seen that animals did not have any feelings or emotions and things like that and it, it's it was up to us to make use of them mm-hmm. as we seemed to f- uh, f- uh, as we seemed fit yeah. so like the, the, the capacity of these ideas to change the culture is very like it's very large mm-hmm. and it has happened historically so that's what I personally think that's the value in studying philosophy, because uh, the it changes the culture one inherits at any given point of time.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I guess I would add to that, too, if people want a more... Because, yeah, I totally agree with that. And then I guess on a more personal level, and I mean, this wouldn't apply for everyone, but I think for certain kinds of people, philosophy is kind of the way you naturally think of things in your life like you yeah. you know some people like just kind of like thinkers and they ask these kind of questions whether they're studying philosophy or not yes. and that's how it was for me one of the reasons i decided to major in philosophy as an undergraduate because i just took the class like i didn't know what philosophy was and it was just kind of a elective or a required class you know for gen ed and, and so I took it, and I was like, whoa, these people are doing, they're kind of thinking how I was always thinking and kind of asking the same kind of questions. Yeah. I never knew, like, anyone else did this, you mm-hmm. know, because you know, most people aren't talking about this in everyday life. Um, but, you know, so that's something that really, for me, it deeply affects my own way I live my life every yeah. day, you know, my own personal way of dealing with with life and with the world and i think that's not just for me that's for a lot of people who are kind of they approach the world in that more you know kind of like critical way and and asking questions like this philosophy can have a real personal impact if, if they study it um and something you'd really miss out on if you didn't study it uh, you know for certain people again because you know i can't imagine what it'd be like if i didn't you know I'd be like a totally different person if I hadn't done philosophy I mean not just because you know I do it professionally but just because how I view things is so influenced by it um you know and I don't think I would be as happy um and again I don't you know I'm not saying that's for everybody but I am saying for certain types of people yeah I think for them to major in philosophy it's like practical to sense like you'll be a happier person if you're kind of You know, able to take that natural way that you relate to the world and then start like learning how to do that well, right? So, if you're naturally kind of, hey, I like to think about things rationally, well, philosophy can teach you, here's how you actually do that well, and you know, we'll give you some rules for logic and and things like that. So, you think there's that kind of personal side, you know, there's the grand scheme of things side, um, and the social, you know, the way this is going to affect culture, and then there's a more personal side of some people this is really going to help you personally, depending on who you are. And, you know, other people know you'll hate it, but, you know, right? Like, but, yeah, I do think it's it's true that, um, you know, we all kind of deal with these questions. We deal with them in different ways, and for those people who deal with them in this intellectual kind of way, it can be really helpful.
0: Yeah, I think that, um, you know, that, like you said, it kind of depends on who you are, but, you know, that could be a tough sell, I think, mm-hmm. nowadays, in that um, college is... It's so expensive, but, you know, there's still a lot of incentive to go
2: mm-hmm.
0: in that, you know, everyone kind of knows, like, well, if you get a college degree, here's what your pros- your job prospects are, here's where your earning prospects are, here's what happens if you don't. So if you're one of these people that is going to go to college and take on that expense, you know, then the question becomes, well, okay, what's the best shot to sort of um, get a return on this investment? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, STEM's really big right now. And, you know, I kind of fell into this myself. I'm a non-traditional student, and I remember, you know, before I decided to, to come to school, um, you know, Googling, like, most, um, like, marketable degrees or something mm-hmm. like that. And then, you know, always thinking that something like philosophy, I didn't totally understand it. That sounds pretty interesting, though. Like, I'm a musician. Maybe I'll get a degree in music. But, like, always kind of coming in this, like, not very well-informed conclusion that, Oh, but those are just degrees, and, and also, I think from things I've heard other people say, it's like, oh, well, um, that degree is just going to be collecting dust, and I'm going to have a lot of debt, and what am I going to do with that? Um, you know, like I was saying, Googling you know, most marketable degrees, and seeing something like liberal arts or philosophy just like at the absolute bottom <laughs> of the list, and then you know, computer science like right near the top, and I'm kind of like, well, I'm not a computer science guy at all, like, <laughs> but you know, maybe I could become one, I don't know, and then initially going in kind of like a stem route and then you know i had a brief uh detour into accounting and then it was kind of <laughs> like wait a minute what am i thinking like that's not and i mean you know god bless the accountants out there but like it's just not me you know mm-hmm. even to the point where you know i was kind of at this point where you know i was making a lot of changes and it was kind of like, hey i've made a lot of changes who mm-hmm. knows maybe i could do something like this now and then coming out of that and then saying oh yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna major in psychology to you know people that I knew and they're like yeah I kind of wondered what you were thinking with that accounting thing but <laughs> you know like I say all that because you know I, I really wish I would have gotten into philosophy earlier and I, and I came to it pretty late in my you know undergrad career and I wish I could have gotten more classes in but um, just going in a route that was eventually more fulfilling to me, you know, has been worth it for me but mm-hmm. for a lot of people that might be like I am where they're just like well you know I got to get a job um I'm just going to go engineering because that seems like oh you'll make you know 80k you know at some point and that sounds good and I guess I'll do that so when people are contending with that it's kind of like well why go into philosophy mm-hmm. and I think we've kind of already been talking about that but
2: yeah yeah I mean so I mean I think first of all philosophy and liberal arts degrees in general get kind of like They have this bad reputation, which in a lot of ways is unwarranted even, right? So there's certain kind of degrees, yeah, like engineering, which is like pretty clear. I get a degree in engineering, I get a job as an engineer, right? We even get the same name, you know, you know how much you're going to make even, you know, ballpark at least, right? So there's this real kind of like clear linear process of like this degree, this job. Um, but a lot of majors aren't like that, even a lot of STEM ones. Like, biology isn't really like that, where it's, you know, there's a number of avenues you can go in psychology, too, right? Um, if psychology counts as STEM, which I'm not sure if it does, but... but, uh, but it does. It does, okay, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, either way, right? Like, an for undergraduate...
0: For the NIH-funded program that I was in that placed me in a lab as a research assistant as uh-huh. an undergrad, it's a science.
2: Okay, well, yeah, so... We, so, do, we
1: do uh, use the Popperian scientific method, too. So.
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> then there you go. So, so, But I mean, I guess that's a good example, too, is like with an undergraduate in psychology, there's no like, hey, this is the job you get, right? Yeah. There's ex- any number of jobs you could get. Um, and I think that's the same thing for, for philosophy and most liberal arts degrees as well. It's, there's not kind of like this, I did engineering and now I'm an engineer. Or, I did, you know, an undergrad in psychology. It doesn't mean you're going to be a psychologist, right? You would have to go to graduate school. Um, And so, yeah, so I think, you know, there's first of all this misperception there where people are kind of not recognizing that, wait a minute, there's a bunch of these degrees that don't have like this clear linear path. But that doesn't mean they don't have a path, right? And And if you, I've talked to people at the career center here, um, you know, who try to place our CSU students in jobs, and, and yeah, their kind of attitude is, look, especially in today's job market, you know, these non-linear approaches, right, these approaches where you do what you like, and then we'll find something that you can do with that, because there's a lot of different options out there, um, and, and I mean, there is a study that, that says that, uh, philosophy majors five years out are making more money than business majors right i don't know why that is it might be because they go on to graduate school and become lawyers or whatever right and you know so so yeah i think there just is this misperception that this will just be a dead end if you have this liberal arts degree um where no it's just It's just like you're going to have to be a little more creative, right? It's not going to be like I do philosophy and then I become, you know, undergraduate philosophy and and now I'm a philosopher and I make money (laughs) doing that. Um, But, yeah, again, a lot of STEM, you know, biology is like that too. There's not, you know, like a linear, um, you know, undergrad straight into a job, uh, you know, that only would take biology majors kind of thing.
1: Yeah, that's true.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, I think that's that's a lot of it and then yeah i guess the second part of this would be you can do both right so you were saying i uh, you found you know taking this personal fulfillment route was actually really helpful for you and uh, same with me as well and i think if people are you know if you just kind of i mean i realize like i certainly wasn't thinking this way when i was going to college as an undergraduate but yeah if you think through it you could get your degree in engineering if you want take an extra year and double major in something right like in psychology or philosophy or something that's going to help you kind of better understand who you are sure you might have to take an extra year with a program like engineering because they require so much of their students um but so what Do you're going to be making enough money to like pay the student loans off so <laughs> wouldn't it be nice to have some like figure out who you are and you know achieve something that you can it's much more difficult to achieve later in life when you're kind of on a normal nine to five job and you've got a family to ask these kind of bigger questions is not as easy to do at that point. Um, and so while you're young and have that opportunity, um, yeah, why not take the extra year and, you know, do a humanities major or do a, you know, again, or some, some major that's going to help you like achieve some personal fulfillment in addition to your money-making major. Um, Yes, I mean, I think, you know, both those, you know, once we kind of recognize, hey, philosophy is actually not that bad in terms of getting you a job. It can get you a job. It's just not this, like, obvious, linear, you know, I got this degree and now here's this field that only wants philosophy majors. Um, And then combine that with the idea that, and I should also do something in, in my college career that helps me better understand who I am in the world and, you know... Both of those, I mean, you should either be like double majoring in philosophy or whatever you know is gonna work for you, um, you know, or yeah, just major in philosophy and you know, figure out what you know, find a career that that can use that, and and they're out there, um, yeah. So yeah, you know, I guess that's kind of like a lot, but <laughs> yeah, I kind of wish there was more of an emphasis put on that,
0: you know, in in the culture, and that it, it weren't something that just kind of got dismissed i think Mm -hmm. i think that you know even you know like, there's so many adults out there i think to to a that would just say to a a young person that they didn't even really know that well that they heard what they were going into that would be Mm -hmm. like oh no you got to go into this like Mm -hmm. there's no money in that what are you doing And it's like without even thinking twice there's just this knee-jerk like why are you doing that you you gotta go into stem like Mm -hmm. um or you know like whatever it is or just something where um Yeah, I just I don't know, I just think like that any kind of anything that involves personal development just gets like a short shrift, I think.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's a cultural prejudice that that we have in the in the US where it's kinda like, you know, yeah, I mean it's almost just like I only think in terms of money, right? It's kinda like I'm gonna spend money on this and I need to be like making money as a result of that. But I think if we shift the focus a little and say, Well, wait a minute. If I could pay, again, for maybe another year of tuition, I know that's a lot of money, but, and get a degree that really helps me better understand myself and the world and, you know, is going to make me a better, more well-rounded and happier person, say, yeah, why wouldn't you spend a few thousand dollars on that? I mean, you're going to be, what are you going to be doing with all this money you're making, you know? Um, Here's a chance to, like, spend it on something that's going to allow you to become a happier person. And, yeah, and I, I do think that's, you know, I know that's not kind of the typical attitude people have towards college, but I don't see why not, right? People spend all kinds of money on trying to make themselves happy in various ways, and I think this is one that actually works pretty well. And so, again, get that practical degree if, if you know, you're in a situation where you need to do that, but why not double major or at least get a minor in a you know, and something that's a little more meaningful. Do you have anything else? Nope.
0: <laughs> I think we covered it all. all right. Yep. Thank
1: you for your time. Yeah, it was yeah. really good cool.
0: conversation.